Remain standing for the reading of the Word of God in your pew Bibles, page 831 and 832. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 13 and verses 1 to 16. How, even though this was written hundreds of years ago, how, how full of application it is when so many people profess to be bringing the Word of God. Ezekiel chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, page 831 and following in your Bibles. The Word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, Prophesy, this, these are so scary, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? And therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, stop and think about this. I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? And therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall, and upon those who've smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, this wall is no more. Not those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her. 
when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. I'm going to give a few texts that are more applicable to what passes today as so-called declarations of the word of the Lord. I want you to listen to Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5 if you want, but just listen to Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. You'll be listening to a lot of scriptures today, and this one I want to powerfully impact you. Colossians 1 and verse 15, on the preeminence of Christ, he, Jesus, is the image, that is, he is the exact image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, which means that he's head over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, which is page 962 in your pew Bibles, for those visiting with us today, we are working through what we are calling the being attitudes, the so-called beatitudes, and we come to number 7, interestingly, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of sons of God. And it's, it's not children of God, it is sons of God. You'll find the reason as we go through the sermon today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you respond by saying together, hallelujah and thanks be to God. I hope that you've all begun to see uh, that that Jesus Christ is really, he is the embodiment, literally, of the beatitudes, the being attitudes. Poor in spirit, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the one who mourned, the one who was meek, even more meek than Moses was, the perfection of hungering and thirsting after righteousness the one who was the perfection of the Good Samaritan being merciful and perfectly pure in heart. And so Jesus, as he begins to open up the Sermon on the Mount, is opening up his own heart. And what is it to be a Christian? Well, it's to experience what I call Christ's pulmonary renewal, CPR, <laughs> where Christ, Christ's own heart becomes yours. You learn of him in the scriptures. You are, you are caught up in how glorious he is. You believe in him. You rest in him. And, and with all the benefits that come, his own heart becomes yours. And that's when you can begin to appreciate the being attitudes, especially in being attitude number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God.
Now, I'm going to begin with a little confession this morning. Uh, as an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, we have, especially this, this generation, that once was the younger generation of OPC ministers, we have been dubbed Machen's warrior children. Che Gresham Machen, the great contender of the faith that we're learning about in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, and we, we are part of the church militant, and we must be part of the church militant. But here's the confession. All too often, the militancy for truth uh, can eclipse the call to be a peacemaker. Now, there's, a, there's not a tension here, there's a challenge here, but we're still called to be peacemakers. And over this past week, you talk about the word being screwed into the heart between D.A. Carson and John R. Stodd and Sinclair Ferguson, and above all, uh, Charles Spurgeon in one of his most masterful sermons, The Peacemaker. Wow, as he probed this heart. So you're, you'll have a lot of, of heart-searchingness that comes out of the message today, but it won't be just for me. I guarantee you it will be for you as well. Okay. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, and we're going to do four things today. Number one, the great, the great peacemaker. You know who he is. Uh, the great peacemaker who is Jesus himself. And then number two, the great picture. Uh, it's something of the scope of what's in view in being peacemakers. Number three, the great pitfall. The great pitfall. You learned of that in the Old Testament reading. And then number four, the great promise that's given here. They will be called the sons of God. And and if if this displays Christ's heart, and there's something that we would know of as the heart of the heart, it really is right here in number seven, interestingly, the number of perfection, the seventh of, of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. And today I intentionally want you to be looking up a number of scriptures because I want the Word of God to wash over you, and you'll find it will impact you far better than any way that I could, I could proclaim it. So let's look in the first place at the great peacemaker, the one, the one who brings the fullness of shalom, the fullness of blessing, not only to individuals, but literally to, to a whole universe. And that, that's Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace. So it's no coincidence, it's the eve of the birth of the Lord Jesus, and the angels from heaven say, I come to bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and he is the one who is to bring peace to those of good will, and he's to bring peace within the whole earth. And so the peacemaking work of Christ is declared here. What you heard in Colossians 1 is so powerful. And you have the God-man, Jesus, and the God-man comes into a world that is at war with God. And that has, that has affected literally the whole universe in various ways. And by the blood of the cross, he makes peace. And then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul parses that out a bit when he says that the Lord Jesus Christ made of the two, of the Jew and the Gentile, people who were at one another's throats the same way 
Well, the same way Arabs and Jews are at one another's throats in the Middle East today, but God, between Jews and Gentiles, made the two into one new man. And look with me in in 2 Corinthians. I'll give you the page numbers. You can use your pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 19 to 21. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And that would be page 1,148 in your pew Bibles. hope you can count that far. 1,148. And, and really, what is the... You talk about the, 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 the dynamo of the gospel is here. In verse 18, beginning at page 1,148, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this, now this in Christ, this new creation is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We by nature at war with with God, and through Christ we are reconciled to God. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, says Paul the Apostle, now given to ministers of the gospel. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. A world at war, God was going to make it at peace, not counting their trespasses against them, because that's the source of war, the sin of man against God, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God, be at peace with him, cast down the weapons of your warfare, and come to him in Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin, Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! That's that's peace, brothers and sisters. And, and, And you'll notice it begins with peace between man who by nature is like Adam and Eve. We run away from God. We want to cover our unrighteousness with fig leaves of our own works. And God holds out Christ to us and says, Stop the warfare. Stop running and come to me and rest in me. And then there's peace. So there's, there's peace with God. No more, no more strife because of the work of Christ. And then again, between man and man, Remember, the gospel does what the United Nations can't. You have people who not only, not only are angry with God and hate God, they may hate one another, but the Lord converts them. He saves them, and he gives them the spirit of adoption. And one looks at the other and says, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister, and you live that way. Folks, is that what the gospel means to you? It should. Gospel's not fire insurance. The gospel, the gospel is about recreating a family. All right, and so God does that in in the person and the work of Christ. He is the God Man who takes our sins on the cross. Now, this is what makes this whole section rather difficult. Jesus is the peacemaker but not always. 
Matthew chapter 10, and you can move ahead in your, your Bibles from where, where you are in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 10. We speak of the covenant, the family, God being God to us and to our children, and we love that and we believe that. But the covenant, brothers and sisters, is not an idol. It's still something that, that God has in his providence made, if you will. And this is also true, Matthew 10, verses 34 to 37, page 969. The great peacemaker says, Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Now, he does bring peace to the earth, but what he's saying is that's not the only thing. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father, now remember, see how easy it is to make an idol out of the covenant that God will be a God to us and to our children. And here's why we're never to do that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take, here it is, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That cross, there is your portion in the cross of Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the covenant is not an idol, it's an economy. It's, it's a way in which God does things working in families. But you can never get away from the cross, including in God's covenant. And that cross means pain. All peacemaking comes with pain. And therefore, even within God's covenantal dealings, you'll find the pain of a daughter, a son, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law being against you. And that's done in God's providence so that you realize your first love is not your covenant child, but your covenant Lord. Okay, So, so see how, how God he is the peacemaker. We're going to deal with that. But always keep that but in mind. Jesus did also add, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Before peace. And, and, and so, th so there's that. There's the cross. The other point in here, before we get to the great picture, is never forget. There is something before peace, and that's purity. We'll come to the text in James 3 a little bit later, but listen to what James says. Remember, we've covered hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We've covered being pure in heart. And now we come to blessed are the peacemakers. It's not coincidental that it's before those who are persecuted. They're all connected. But James says in chapter 3 and verse 17, 
the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. That's where persecution comes in. You can do your very best to be a peacemaker. That's going to be the thrust of the next point. And still there will be war. And there will be persecution. The goal is peace. As much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. But that doesn't mean that there's always going to be peace with all people. So, so, so we have to begin this way. Jesus is the great peacemaker. But remember that, that the great peacemaker was the one who among his own people heard the cries, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you can't take the cross away from the covenant or away from peacemaking. Okay, so, so that's just, that's just the, number one, the, the, great, the great peacemaker. Now let's look in the second place at the great picture. And by that I mean, if, if, you, if you have a massive kind of a panorama, there you go, that's probably what I should have called it, the great panorama, a, a huge picture of what peacemaking is in history, what, what would it look like? Well, number one, not necessarily in importance, but, but, uh, but these are the aspects of that. You would be a peacemaker as a citizen, as a citizen of a nation that may very well be Here at war. This watch is a tyrant. Please, Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say, uh, hey, Alexa, <laughs> be quiet, but anyway. All right, so the, the great picture, the great panorama as a citizen. You're part of a nation in which there may be war. War, Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars until he comes. And, and given, given that reality, how are you a peacemaker when you're just a, an individual citizen and really don't have any say in all of the decisions that are made in, in war strategy and, and so on? Well, certainly you pray. And you pray for wisdom for leaders that they will know how they can pursue peace. We've been doing that uh, when it comes to Israel and, and Gaza uh, or the Ukraine and, and Russia. You're praying that leaders will have wisdom, that they work for peace. Why do you do that? Well, because one of the promises in the scriptures is that with the gospel, and ultimately with the coming of Christ, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And Isaiah says, and they will make war no more. Now, again, until Christ comes back, there'll be war. But you pray that there might be peace in the world and that the Lord give wisdom to those involved with that. And don't you see how in war, peace is almost always, if not always, attained through pain. Wars bring death. And that ugly picture of death is in a very imperfect way, but in a very real way, a picture of the great victory that comes about by a death, isn't it? And there's no way to make the cross or the death of soldiers and people in war 
pleasant. So as a citizen, again, ultimately we say, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. <laughs> and, and so there will be war no more. But meanwhile, you pray and you work. And, and there's a lot that we can do. And people say, well, is there such a thing as a just war? Yes, there is. Uh, the magistrate bears the sword. And for what? Well, certainly at least to defend your own nation. Uh, but also at times, as we learned in, in World War II, there's a need of, of war in order to stop someone who threatens others. That's a massive question. Uh, but the point is, even in the midst of all of those things, you're praying for peace. That, that's just part of the, the great, I'll call it a panorama instead of picture. And then in the second place, you are a peacemaker as a neighbor. As a neighbor. The Good Samaritan, who, who was the neighbor in that story? Well, the Good Samaritan was the neighbor as he helped uh, the person who was harmed by the side of the road, as our little children learn of their catechism. All my fellow men and women and boys and girls are my neighbors. And as you deal with your neighbors, yeah, we're meant to be peacemakers. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12. First Peter, you're going to move ahead in your Bibles toward the end of the New Testament. First Peter 3 and verses 8 through 12, page 1205. Now Peter, remember, Peter is writing to Christians in the same situation you're in. They're living among the Gentiles and the nations. And he's saying, this is the way you need to conduct yourself when you're, when you're right, right there rubbing rubbing noses with the world and being in the world. First Peter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you, now here he's writing to, to the believers, but he says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Not tender heart and humble mind just toward believers, but, but period, you're to have that. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Clearly, you're in a situation here where there are those who are antagonistic to your faith. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, lachaim, to life, okay? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The writer of Hebrews will say the same thing. Pursue, hunt, seek hard after peace. And he says, in that holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. But, but there's work in this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What's righteousness here? Well, it's those who turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And his ears are open to their prayer. And oh, you will pray when you're involved in peacemaking. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's evil? Those who don't keep their tongue from evil. Those who don't keep their lips from speaking deceit. Those who don't turn away from evil. Those who don't do good, those who don't seek peace, and those who don't pursue it. 
and doesn't say just with believers, we'll get to that. This is in the world, brothers and sisters. I suggest that this is virgin territory for us, especially on Long Island, where it's not unusual for Long Islanders not even to know the names of their neighbors. And just to accept the fact that there may be conflict between the people living right across from you on your little sequestered Long Island street. Evil that can eventuate in violence, if not death. What's your role? To close the fence and turn on the television and not even think about it. That's the way most Long Islanders think. And I indict myself in this, but I think you'll indict yourself too. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that even with our neighbors, Christian or not, we're to seek peace and pursue it. Look at one other text, the one that many of us think of. Romans chapter 12 and verses 14 to 21. Romans chapter 12 and verses 14 to 21, and that's page 1,127. <laughs> Romans, these, these are Christians that are living in the capital of what the writer of the book of Revelation, John, says is the beast. They're living among the worst of the pagans, so to speak. How are you to live? Romans 12 and verse 14, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That doesn't just mean within church life. Your neighbor who's not a Christian who loses her husband, do you weep with her? Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. One of the reasons why there's so much strife is because we think we're so smart and everybody else is so stupid. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Not just believers. No one is no one. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with your brothers and sisters. We'll come to that. This is with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. And he didn't stop there. He says, overcome evil with good, like peacemaking. Now, there's an awful lot involved in this. The fact of the matter is, not only within your own family, your neighborhood, your workplace, when there's strife 
and animosity and hatred and bitterness. You and I have responsibilities to do what we can to bring about at least an external peace. That's not all of it, but that's part of it. Do you think like that? Or quite frankly, do we think more like Long Islanders who segregate ourselves from everybody else because we don't want to be bothered? Blessed are the peacemakers, including with our own. And incidentally, there's where the pain comes in. Someone who intervenes to quell violence between a couple of men who live across from him ends up in the hospital because he's been beaten by at least one of them as he tries to make peace. Say, I'm not going to be involved with that. Your Savior was. To make peace, your Savior took a cross. Now, not to be foolish, but remember that in all peacemaking, there's pain and there's a cross. More on that at some other point. As a Christian, as part of the church, be peacemakers. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4 and verses 1 through 3. And that's... See how powerful the Word of God is, isn't it? Ephesians 4 and verses 1 through 3, page 1,161. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul, Paul, in his, in his seeking to bring about peace as an evangelist, he gets thrown into prison. And he knows the pain of being a peacemaker in his work of reconciliation. So he says, now, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. What am I urging you to do? You walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, the word is long-suffering, which means somebody's not, not easy to get along with. Bearing with one another in love. You know why it says bearing with one another in love? Because they're frankly pretty unpleasant. But you bear with them in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When God converts people, even when they're unpleasant to you, and adds them to your number in a local church, for example, there's a peace bond there. And you and I are required to not break it by using the language of Ephesians 4, not walking in a manner of the calling to which we've been called, in being proud and being harsh, and being impatient, and not bearing with one another in love. Once I heard a, a pastor, a pastor that I know and love very much, and there was a, a man that I knew very well, who could be very, very unpleasant. And that pastor had the audacity to say, I don't want someone like that in my church. Number one, it's not your church. Jesus bought it, and he doesn't believe in stealing. Number two, when God 
converts a person, brings them to the church, we've all got to grow. You don't say, I don't want him here. You bear with one another in love. That's peacemaking. And it's, I hate to say passing strange, it's passing very sad, that it is usually those people in churches that are most serious about the Word of God who can be the most litigious, who can be those who, on a whim, just separate from one another. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I don't like this practice. I'm leaving. Working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And brothers and sisters, we ought to weep, and I mean weep profusely, when churches split over things like the color of a carpet, how much water should be in the baptistry. Oh yeah, that's happened. Worship styles, they have drums, they have a guitar. I'm out of here. Working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We have a responsibility with our brothers and sisters to do some bending. Never, ever violating what the Word of God clearly teaches. But you and I have to ask ourselves the question, is it principle or is it pride? I've been to too many general assemblies where I've had to hear under appeals and complaints, which will take up hours, men talking about principle. When it's patently obvious to everybody, it's their own pride. Is it scripture or is it your stubbornness? Now let's look at James chapter 3 and verse 17. James chapter 3 and, and verse 17. And again, let these words wash over you, brothers and sisters. He's contrasting the, the wisdom that is, the, the, the wisdom that, that's from the earth, that, that's earthly and sensual and devilish uh, with the wisdom that's from above. And verse 16, and this is page 1201, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. I'm going to win this debate. I'm envious of the success of this brother. Now I've got a way that I can undermine him. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But... The wisdom from above is first pure. You set your face like flint to do what is right, to do what the Word of God says. Then, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial 
and sincere and a harvest of righteousness, that is, that is the doing of what is right, is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what lanced me, brothers and sisters. Machen's warrior children, militant for truth, who could very often become harsh and unyielding. The servant, this is the text that lanced me and still does, the servant of the Lord must not strive, must not be ferocious in debate, but be apt to teach. Wisdom that is from above is first pure, right? Apt to teach. Patient in meekness, another being attitude, self-control under pressure. In meekness, instructing those who are opposing themselves. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Get it? You've heard it so many times. But I hope you can memorize it and say it to yourself. To dwell above with the saints in love, oh, surely that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, that's another story. Brothers and sisters, you and I have obligations with our brothers and sisters. Not to say, I don't like it, I'm out of here. But I'm going to work to bring about a holy peace in this situation, even when I've got to bend in areas that aren't principle and aren't Bible. The last one is this, and if you want a masterful exposition of this, far, far better than I can even imagine, Pastor Charles Spurgeon's sermon on the peacemaker as he deals with bearing the gospel to others. That's the ultimate peacemaking. Why? Because the ultimate in warfare is not with your brother and sisters, with God. And as you bring the gospel to others, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You are at war with those who are at war, not at war in a carnal way, but in bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. These are, there are people and they're, they're sinning against their consciences. Their consciences scream to them that what they do is wrong. And you've got to say to them, listen to what your conscience is saying and repent and come to Christ. And then you'll know the pain. Because if people want to continue to have war with God in their consciences, they'll have war with you. They're at war with the law of God. How often it is today, the whole concept of the law of God. A husband and wife, you shall not commit adultery, sexual purity. And you bring up the importance of chastity, marital fidelity, and that marriage is between one man and one woman. And to oppose that is to be at war with God. Get ready for the pain, folks. Get ready for the cross. And then, not just with conscience or with the law, but with God himself. God who made you and gives you every single breath. And you think your arms are strong enough to box with God. And you call people in the name of Christ 
be reconciled to God. Throw down the weapons of your warfare and come to him. And you may see a conversion, and we pray for that, or you may see a whole lot of conflict. Because in the economy of grace, there's always a cross. All right? but, but the highest bringing of peace is to bring the gospel to others. Now, that brings us in, in, in the third place to the great pitfall. And that great pitfall comes nations with, with nations and nations. It comes with citizens dealing with citizens. It comes within church life. It comes in evangelism. And the, and the great pitfall, you heard it in the book of Ezekiel, is saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. When one nation vows that it will lose its own life before it will give up its commitment to destroy another nation. You scream for peace in that situation and there's not going to be any peace. When neighbors are at loggerheads with one another and you want them just to make nice with one another, that's a false peace. Peace, peace where there is no peace. It won't last. In church life, if there has been sin and there is no confession of sin, granting of forgiveness, and repentance connected with it, there's no peace. And in evangelism, if your evangelism is now, four spiritual laws here. Do you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Oh, that's a wonderful thing to know. And what you need to do is you need to accept Jesus into your heart so you can have that wonderful plan for your life. Oh, really? I'm glad to do that. And, and, and then know that all of your sins are forgiven and all is well with you and God. Hello? What about repentance? What about turning from sin unto Christ, who is your Lord? How many people have been decisioned into their own destruction when people say, peace, peace, where there is no peace? I've heard it. You accepted Jesus into your heart. The worst thing you could ever do is doubt that Jesus has saved you. And then you go live like the devil? And you think you're going to go to heaven? Peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's the great pitfall in all of these areas, and we've all fallen into the pit, which is why we need to ask for forgiveness. The necessity of what precedes the Sermon on the Mount, repent, stop going in the wrong direction. That's right, stop going in the wrong direction and go in the right direction, which is Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And never forget it. When there's been sin, you don't give an apology. If I've sinned against you and I give an apology, I'm trying to give you a reason for what I did that was wrong. An apology is if I say I'm going to meet you at your house at 11 o'clock and we're going to have a meeting and I have a, I have a flat tire and I'm going to be late and I'll let you know that. I make an apology that I got there because something unavoidable happened. I had to be late. 
If I say I'm going to meet with you at 11 o'clock and I sleep in until 10.55 and I get to your house 35 minutes late and say it's all hunky-dory, I need to ask your forgiveness. You know why? I've stolen 35 minutes of your time. And you grant forgiveness. Without that, there's no real peace, folks. If we confess our sins, we agree with him about these things. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The last disciplinary matter that I was involved with, no disciplinary matter is, is pleasant. This was unusually painful. It involved a marriage of many years where there really hadn't been a marriage. And there was a lot of pain over those years. And without going into the specifics, there was sin on the part of one party, and there was a divorce, and a lot of animosity. The Lord worked in both of those parties. And while one of them has remarried, he is so convicted of his own failings. He has spoken with his former spouse on a number of occasions to ask for forgiveness and has even said, please, any other area where I need to ask for forgiveness, do it. And the former wife has done exactly the same thing. While she is the innocent party in the divorce, she, she realizes she too had failed over so many years because it takes two to tango, folks. And she too has asked for forgiveness. And they've virtually got a, a clean slate so that uh, the party who left his wife can come back into church membership with a pure conscience, and he won't do it until he has a pure conscience before God. That's, that's the work God does. Not this quick decision for Jesus, and all's well with me. Pain, folks. This thing called the cross means there's something called sin that's really, really, really serious. Thank the Lord that Jesus becomes sin for his people. But it's that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You not only embrace his righteousness and are justified, declared righteous, but he gives you the Holy Spirit. And you want to do the right things if you're a true Christian. And that ends up bringing peace. So that's the pitfall. Never ever say peace, peace, where there is no peace. Lots of applications for it. Let me, let me in, in the last place, because we don't want to miss the promise that's here, the great promise. They shall be called sons of God. Nothing against you ladies here, okay? But, but sons, when you're a son of someone, that means you take on the characteristic of the one that you are a son of. So if your name is Alderson, you are the son of an alderman or an elder man in a town. That was a common name in, in England. Or um, if you are a master son, you are the son of someone who was a master or a Christian son. You're a son of someone who's a Christian and you're to take on that character. And so the son of God here, you shall be called the son of God, means you take on the character of God in Christ. If Jesus' work is to be a peacemaker in the world and take all the pain necessary for that, you're going to be the same way. 
if his heart is yours. You can't but work to be a peacemaker, fully realizing as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. Pursue peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. But is that your heart, that you seek peace? It's one of the reasons why the elder is not to be someone, uh, the, the, old, the old term that was used in the King James Version, it, it, it basically means a fighter, not someone who is pugilistic, uh, not someone who likes a good fight. I dare say, if you like a good fight, and that's what you incline to, you need to be converted. Jesus did not say, blessed are the fighters, for they'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And notice the language, they shall be called the sons of God. People see it. They see it when in the name of Christ, in a holy way, you're seeking peace. It is not coincidence, nothing is, not coincidence that in Matthew and in Mark, as you have Jesus who goes to the cross, and he is despised and rejected and reviled and spat upon, and all of his words are grace, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This day, you will be with me in paradise. It's no coincidence that as Jesus breathes his last, the centurion says this, truly this, this is the Son of God. He saw in Christ bearing the pain of being the quintessential peacemaker that this is the work God does in the world. Truly this, this was the Son of God. And the point is, people will see this in you. And they may be begrudging in the way they say it, but they'll say, I see something of what God is in that person's kindness and speaking of others, that person's desire to bring peace where there's now strife, even in that person's desire to tell me that I need to be reconciled to God and do it so graciously, I see something of God. They shall be called the sons of God. Do people see you, me, they see you as a peacemaker and the great peacemaker? Or do they see the fighter? Do they see someone who's harsh? Do they hear someone who's mean? Do they see someone who stirs up strife rather than seeks to stamp it out? And this is so expansive. But the language in Colossians 1 is one day, one day, there will be a perfect reconciliation of heaven and earth where there will be only peace in the entire renewed universe because of Christ. And the reason our work is so expansive is in whatever sphere the Lord puts you or me, you work for peace. The more I learn of Eric Little, who was, nobody knew who he was unless you were from Scotland, 
uh, until the movie Chariots of Fire that came out in the 1980s and, and amazingly won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Eric Little was a Scottish Presbyterian. He later became a Congregationalist, I believe, a uh, man of very high ethical principles as a Christian. And of course, the story you hear there, which is true, was in 1924 in the Olympics. He was the, he was the, the great runner of Scotland. Chariots of fire he was as a runner. And he finds out that the trial heats for the run that he was to do, I think it was 100 meters, was on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. And he upsets the whole British, British contingent by saying, no, I, I, don't, I don't run on the Sabbath. I don't run on the Lord's Day. And the movie, although the way that's depicted, it's, it's probably apocryphal, but it's still beautiful. You've got Lord Gaduggan, and a guy probably sucked on lemons for three hours before he did the part. And they're trying to convince, in the very suave Duke of Wales, trying to convince Eric Little that for country, you should run this match. And Eric Little says, no, he says, I, you know, I serve Christ. And, and Lord Goodduggan says, when I was a boy, it was nation first and God second. And in that story, I wish it were true, maybe something like it was, Eric Little says, the word of God says God raises up kings and he brings them down. And that God's ordained the Sabbath and I, for one, intend to keep it. Wow. Wow. P.S. He doesn't run in the 100 meter. He runs in the longer race and he wins the gold medal. It's a beautiful story, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Eric Little serves in China in the 1940s as a missionary. And when the Japanese take over that area and put them in internment camp. And for two years, Eric Little is in a place of horrible confinement, horrible conditions. And it was topped off by the fact that he had a brain tumor that made it so difficult. The testimonies of that peacemaker, Eric Little, are legendary. One Sabbath, he agreed to be the referee for a soccer game because he knew that nobody else was trusted to be a referee. For one thing, he was trusted. But he knew that if the game was played and anyone else was the referee, there'd be a big fight. And so for conscience sake, he was a peacemaker. And he was known over and over and over again for seeking to bring reconciliation with people, first of all with God and then with one another. Remarkable, remarkable testimonies. One man who ended up actually being a theologian, not an orthodox one, but was quite taken by Eric Little, and he said, it is rare indeed that, the person, that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric Little came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. He was called the Son of God. Another one who wrote a book about the remarkable characters in what was called the Courtyard of the Happy Way, which it was not, but that was what it was called. Now, this writer called Eric Little the finest Christian gentleman 
it has been my pleasure to meet. And all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. And he worked to make peace both with God and with man. And he was called the Son of God. Are you? You know the secret to it? The secret to it is in Eric Little's last word. As he was gasping for breath, losing his battle with the brain tumor and an emaciated body that had had very little to eat or drink because of the, the situation at the camp, his last word was surrender. And that's what it takes. If you are going to be a peacemaker, you first of all need to surrender to the Lord Jesus your peace. And in that way, as you live that surrendered life, people will see in your having the heart of Christ to make peace that you are a son and a daughter of the living God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, if we could prostrate ourselves on the floor, we would do it now. Forgive us for our harshness. Forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for our lack of long-suffering. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for our stubbornness. Forgive us for our pride. And forgive us for all of those things that make us warriors rather than peacemakers. And Lord, we need your grace in this as in everything else because we would be first of all pure. We would be first of all those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We would be first of all holy. But following after that, we're to be peacemakers. Lord, teach us how to be both. And do that through the one who was perfectly both. The holy peacemaker, Jesus. Give us his heart, we pray. Amen.